Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this extraordinary portion of your word. And we're grateful for the opportunity to consider it this morning and to come to understand further how these things were written for our instruction, not only to marvel at your kind providence in the midst of this turmoil, but but to understand something of the Christian sensibility in the face of such pressures, in the face of all of life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there are many, many things in this account that would be interesting to look at, but this morning we're going to focus our attention on Paul in the midst of the storm and his striking self-consciousness as a Christian. Look again more closely with me to the text in beginning in verse 21. Recall they'd been without food for a long time. Paul stands up to give a speech, and it's a bold speech. It's in some sense a rebuke. Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet he has a word of comfort for them. That's the point, not the rebuke. He says, I, take you to, I urge you to take heart. There'll be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. And he speaks of a revelation he's had. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, God to whom I belong and whom I serve. A remarkable expression of Paul's self-consciousness in two parts. He speaks first of the God to whom I belong. In the second, he speaks, at least according to the ESV, and whom I worship. The Greek term here, however, can be translated, and it is regularly translated, serve. A translation that gives a better sense here than worship. It's a more comprehensive sense, connecting better to Paul's first point. Note also in this context, Paul is talking about his service to the Lord. The prophecy was respect to the preservation of that service. So the latter translation makes more sense here. This is the way the word is translated in Luke 174, for example, in Zechariah's prayer. He prayed, remember, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him with fear. It's the same word in our text, translated worship. Or, for example, Jesus in Luke 4, 8. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There you see the regular word for worship, and then our word translated serve. And finally, Paul himself, showing his sensibility in 2 Timothy 1, 3. I thank God whom I serve our word, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, and so on. Well, the God that I belong to, the God that I serve, he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and and behold, God has granted you all that sail with you. And so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now consider, under these extreme conditions, Paul wants to encourage these men and give them hope. Under extreme conditions, one doesn't waste words 
or offer cold comfort. As we might say, hanging wonderfully concentrates the mind. Or, there are no atheists in a foxhole. As the proverb reminds us, the truth will out. And so Paul identifies himself, himself and his God, getting at the heart of what it means for Paul to be a Christian. Paul can speak with persuasive confidence in this circumstance because he knows himself to be one who belongs to God and thus serves him. Paul is steady in the midst of the storm. He's resolute because he's firm in who he is. And I want us to consider this morning then this grand declaration, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And of course, Paul is not alone in this sensibility. Paul is here a representative believer. This must be the radical self-consciousness of all who believe. I belong to God. My life is devoted to his service. It is this truth that I want to explore with you this morning. There are three parts to consider. First, what do I mean by radical self-consciousness? The second that the Christian belongs to God. And third, the Christian life is devotion to his service. So first, what do I mean by radical self-consciousness of the Christian? Well, radical comes from the Latin word for root. It refers to the basic nature of a thing, its most essential features. It's evident in the expression, We want to get to the root of the matter. That is what is most fundamental, the source of all else. With respect, then, to Christian self-consciousness, what is the root? Well, it is what is the basic nature of Christian self-consciousness. It's that sense of self, who I am, that frees, that enables free and confident action. I know who I am, and in that knowledge am enabled to know what I can and should do. You can see this in your own experience. When your self-consciousness enables, you have a certain freedom of action. When it does not, you feel somewhat constrained. One example of this to me was in my experience in all the years we were at the fire station. After many years of being there, I'd been around so often that I'd become kind of a regular feature to the firemen there. Uh, I could come and go as I pleased, wandering around the place, my keys jingling, giving me a sound of authority. Often people would come in to find out about renting the hall. They would walk around meekly looking till they'd finally come up to me and tentatively ask if I knew anything about holding an event there. The self-consciousness between, the difference in self-consciousness between the two of us was radically different. I was perfectly at ease at home in the place and was able to help them. Often they would never, they would leave never knowing that I was the pastor of a church that met there and not one of the members of the fire company. It was because of my self-consciousness that in a way I belonged there and was enabled to be useful. 
another, a better example. Think of this place on Sunday mornings when Christy comes in and takes out her violin. I think of myself doing that. How tentative, how nervous, how uncomfortable. It would be impossible for me. And yet week after week, she opens her case. She has a perfect freedom in nestling the instrument under her chin, firmly gripping the bow, and naturally and beautifully lovely music flows from it. She knows who she is and what she can do, and that enables her. This is a self-consciousness that enables us to act with confidence and freedom, especially in difficult and challenging circumstances. Thus we come to the radical self-consciousness of the Christian, exemplified in these two propositions, that Paul knows himself to belong to God, and Paul thinks of his life as service to God. So let us consider these two elements. First, the God to whom I belong. Paul thinks of himself as owned. Now that's not a very happy phrase these days. It's not a good thing to be thought, to be owned. And we need not even go into the misty past to understand this. For contemporary jargon fully sustains the negative sense. You've heard today sometimes, haven't you? Someone say, well, Joe got owned. Owned is an internet slang word used to acknowledge a form of superiority through the downfall of another. This can be in the context of winning an online game, a debate forum, or attaining a successful hacking. It's a signature often in a debate in a form of rebuttal. You just got owned, buddy. It announces the defeat of another. It signifies failure and humiliation through the dominance or superiority of another. But in our hence, we have a completely different sense. In fact, we have another wonderful instance of how the gospel turns a fallen world upside down. Our text is very different. The thought that we are in possession of someone, most fundamentally, is because the possessor has rights over us in some way. Now, Paul might have asserted this simply by virtue of the doctrine of creation in Scripture. The principle here is that the creator has rights over what he creates. So throughout, throughout the scripture, God is said to be the owner of the works of his hands. This includes, of course, human beings created in his image. This includes every human being, even unrepentant, unrepentantly and sinful and rebellious human beings. In fact, this is one of the chief points of charge against a fallen race that we have not properly acknowledged that ownership. Recall Paul in Romans 1 at verse 21. Selections here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served, the Greek term in our text, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There you see the two parts. They didn't acknowledge God as God. They didn't honor him so. They didn't count themselves as belonging to him. And they refused to serve him. You see, the idea at work when Daniel explains the prophecy against the king in 523. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But the God in whose hands your, is your breath and all your ways, you have not honored. But God is not owner simply by virtue of his rights as creator. Paul has something more in view. More profoundly, that ownership is with respect to God as Savior. And this is true not only for Paul, but for all who believe. So, for example, the psalmist understood this well, as in our Old Testament lesson this morning. In verse 94, the text we looked at, we hear David say, I am yours, save me. He recognizes there's a connection between God's saving work and his ownership. So too Peter speaks of what our Lord's relation to believers are in these words. In 2 Peter 2.1, he is the master who bought them. That's the description of his saving work. And so Paul, to the Ephesian elders, as he's exhorting them and explaining to them the reason for their care of the church in Acts 20, 28, he said, these are those which he obtained with his blood. This ownership and salvation, in fact, is said to be the foundation for praise in heaven. In Romans 5, uh, Revelation 5, at verse 9, we hear of those who are joyfully singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, language, and nation. Purchased a people for God. Paul brings this sensibility home powerfully to the Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says to them, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you that you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The price, of course, was Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul is saying, Look, if you think of yourself as being redeemed by Jesus, then you ought to think of yourself as being owned by Jesus. There is no conflict between an utterly gracious salvation, not by works, and a working faith. For the person who rightly knows himself as having been graciously saved by Jesus also should know himself to belong. To Jesus. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to own something? 
Well, of all that we might say, clearly this much is true. It means that I can do with it what I want. This is the most fundamental sense. If something is mine, I can do with it as I please. This can be illustrated in my experience by a common occurrence for me. Uh, Jenny and I try to walk daily in a neighborhood, a little course that we follow, uh, and I'm constantly struck by a truck on the streets of our neighborhood in contrast to my brother's truck. My brother's truck, under his care, is constantly gleaming. Interior spaces spotless and well-maintained. It's as comfortable as sitting into your living room as his stereo system wafts through the cab. Now, on the other hand, there's a dear fellow in our neighborhood, and I must say I am enticed by this, His truck is covered with mud. Any part of it that might have been is torn off by the branches that he's been running through. The mud is caked caked up under the wheels where the four-wheel drive has driven through some terrible terrain. The truck stands there worn and battered as a trophy, having conquered some place that was otherwise impassable. Now, my brother is free to do what he wants with his truck. And this fellow is free to do what he wants with his truck. Though I prefer the latter myself. But that's the point, isn't it? That each one has his own and has the right to do what he will with it. Paul makes this point with respect to God and his ownership of us in Romans 9.21. Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and the other for dishonorable. This is the most fundamental self-consciousness of the believer. I am the Lord's. He can do with me what he pleases. That sense ought to belong to my every waking moment. But back to my illustration about trucks. In this world, there are limits as to the rights of ownership. We can do what we want with our own, but nevertheless, if nothing else, we are accountable to God. A person may not do well with respect to his ownership and thus fall under judgment. What we have is ownership that is properly a stewardship the use of something accountable to another. And therefore, we must give an account of how we use what we own. But God, God is not accountable to anyone. God is perfectly free to do whatever he will with respect to what he owns, including you and me. Now, we might well think this is threatening. Unlimited power with unlimited right, but no, it is no threat. Because God, according to the scriptures, is accountable to himself. He is accountable to his own holy nature, which cannot, because he will not, be violated. It is no threat. With respect to his ownership of us, It is a most precious truth 
that he can do with us what he will. But for what the Lord pleases is always good. And for those bought by the blood of Christ, it is always for their good. The former should be the primary sense of my self-consciousness. That is, God can do with me what he wills. But the latter is what makes this a tender and precious truth. What he wills is for my good in Jesus Christ. What is it to own something first? I can do with it what I please. But we can still ask further, what does it mean to own something? Well, is there anything more? And the answer is yes. If I own something, no one else has a right to ownership over me, over it. No one has a right to intervene and urge that they have some claim. It belongs to me. Now, Paul used, shows this point in a very interesting way in 1 Corinthians 7:22. Listen to this text. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, who was free when he was called is a slave in Christ. You were bought with a price. There's the point. You're owned by God. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. What is Paul saying? He's saying that your this worldly circumstances may vary considerably. Some of you may come to know Christ while you're in this worldly bondage. You're a slave. Some of you will come to know Christ and your circumstances will be, humanly speaking, that you're free. Paul says to both, I want you to understand that your self-consciousness ought to transcend the immediate circumstances of your life. Those of you who may be in literal bondage, you ought to think of yourselves as free. That is, free to serve Christ alone even in these circumstances of bondage. And you who are free, for all outward appearances, you ought to think of yourselves in bondage. That is, to in bondage to freely do what Christ calls you to do. You may be a slave in the world's eyes, but now, Paul says, you will serve, not as a slave, but freely, because you will take this not as human bondage, but a calling from the Lord. To another, you may be free in the world's eyes, but you will now serve others, serve as a slave to the Lord. In other words, were Paul to use our contemporary jargon, he is saying to believers, you can't get owned. You're already owned by Jesus. And that ownership is freedom and cannot be violated by any other. Your this-worldly circumstances are not finally defining. Rather, it is the Lord who defines who we are. Note this wonderful irony in our text this morning. Paul is a prisoner under guard, and yet, owned by God and serving him, Paul is boldly acting as a leader in the service for the good of his captors. Who you are in the Lord, adopted as a son, you are free to live and love in righteousness That determined Paul's sense of himself. 
and ought to determine every Christian's sense of himself in the world. This leads to our last consideration. What is it to own something? Someone? It might mean merely as a slave. That sense is clear from history that there were people who were enslaved by others. But Paul speaks of a glorious kind of ownership. The ownership of parents with respect to their children. We easily and rightly think of our children as our own. These are my children. Parents, by God's appointment, have an extraordinary responsibility for and authority over their children. And children have an extraordinary responsibility with respect to their parents. The point is that the ownership most preciously in view here is the ownership of a father over a son. Paul says to the Galatians in 3.26, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is because we've been adopted into God's family. So that the self-consciousness of the believer is radically, I am his and he is mine. I am his adopted son. Thus Romans 8.15, You did not receive a spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we have seen the radical self-consciousness of the believer. I am owned by God. I belong to God. He can do with me what he will. I am free in him because I cannot be owned by another And I am owned not merely as a slave, but as a son. Now the second element of Paul's radical self-consciousness. The God whom I serve, my life is devoted to the Lord. Again, the rejection of this truth is another of the chief points of the charge of sin against a fallen race. The rebellious in general have in their hearts the cry of the French anarchists in the revolution. No God, no masters. They wanted to be free to serve only themselves. And they can clearly see that if masters were to go, God had to go first. Again, Paul might have argued his point merely from the point of view of creation. As created by God All are his servants. Again, our Old Testament lesson this morning in verse 98 of the passage. Forever, O Lord, your your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. The sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, the animals and the plants preeminently created in God's image. You and I, everything by virtue of creation is a servant of the Lord. But so too Paul's self-consciousness is not simply rooted in creation, but it's more radically rooted in redemption. There are some who are servants of the Lord by way of preeminence. 
those who are willingly so. These adopt the calling of servants as the highest possible calling of their lives. Our Old Testament lesson continues in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love to hear what you call me to and to comply. I am a servant. Freed from bondage to sin, we are freed to serve the Lord in righteousness. Thus, in the Old Testament, the servant servant is not a derogatory term. It is a term of honor. Deuteronomy 34.5 Moses was the servant of the Lord, a badge of honor. In Judges 2, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. David in Psalm 36 identifies himself preeminently, the servant of the Lord. Now this is so because the servant takes his self-consciousness from the greatness of the one he serves. We see this clearly in the literature of the early 20th century in Great Britain. This was a time when there were still servants in a wealthy home. Those servants who were especially regarded and highly acknowledged typically served one who was of exalted capacity. And so it was fascinating in the film Gosford Park to see the pecking order between the servants and those whom they served because the servants looked at each other in relationship to who their master was. And the ones who served the more exalted were counted more exalted among the servant crew. To be the Lord's servant, to be the Lord's servant is exalting. It's exalting because to be his servant means to be chosen by him. Psalm seventy-eight seventy. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Sheepfolds. Psalm one hundred five twenty-six. God sent Moses his servant and Aaron who he had chosen. Notice the parallelism in the text. To be a servant is just to be one who is chosen. Those who understand these things willingly embrace the title. You see this in Psalm 116 at verse 16. David cries out with joy, O Lord, I am your servant. You have loosed my bonds. Irony? Extraordinary? Exquisite? I am your servant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. This, in fact, was the Apostle Paul's favorite self-designation, servant of the Lord. So in this fallen world, all believers with Paul have been brought from one kind of service to another. The first service was in Romans 125. We worship and served creatures rather than the Creator. But the second service is glorious. 1 Thessalonians 1 9. Now you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This servanthood is no diminishment of our dignity, 
but an exaltation of our dignity. And thus it is no burden to be a servant of this God, but a delight. This is beautifully illustrated in the film Princess Bride. Early in the film, we have a grandfather reading a lovely tale to his grandson sick at home. The story is about a young woman in a land far away where there were still kings and princes. Her name was Buttercup, and she had an admirer whose name was Wesley, although at this point in the story, we only know him simply as farm boy. The grandfather reads, a farm boy, that he was a servant in the household of Buttercup, and that whenever Buttercup would command something, farm boy would reply, as you wish. This was all he ever said to her. Buttercup, farm boy, fill this with water, please. Farm boy, as you wish. But then Grandpa reads these lines. One day, Buttercup was amazed to discover that when farm boy was saying, as you wish, what he, was re- what he really meant was, I love you. How wonderful. You see, as you wish, in this case, to offer service is an expression of delighted love in that service. And surely this illustrates what our Lord said to his apostles in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. When my self-consciousness with respect to the Lord is as you wish, I am really saying to the Lord, I love you. This is the radical self-consciousness of the believer. I belong to God. My life is devoted to his service. Let's make a couple of points of application. First, concerning this radical self-consciousness. It is objectively true that you belong to God that you were his servant. This is the accomplishment of Jesus, and it's given to you as a gift. But we must nurture these truths in our self-consciousness so that they become part of who we are subjectively. The Holy Spirit provides the disposition in the believer to embrace these truths. But ours is nonetheless to work so as to grasp them that they become the root of our sense of who we are in every circumstance. This is our calling, to embrace, to internalize, to live out, and to be ever growing in this conviction. Spurgeon put it beautifully this way. He has bought us entirely from head to foot Every power, every passion, every faculty, all of our time, our goods, all that we call our own, all that makes up ourselves in the largest sense of that term, we are altogether gods. Ah, it is very easy for people to say this, but how very difficult to feel it's true and act as such. This must be from the very beginning. The Heidelberg Catechism wonderfully sets this before us in its first question and answer. To try and teach the new believer from the beginning the very foundation of what it means to be a believer. 
What is your only comfort in life and death? The catechism asks. It's written in your bulletin if you want to follow along. What is my only comfort in life or death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair on my head can fall, but um, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And of course, the catechism continues later. It says, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me eternal life and makes me wholehearted, willingly, wholeheartedly willing and ready to live from now on for him. Do you see the connection? I belong to God. And I am his servant. This leads to our consideration then of my life devoted to his service. We should all have an imaginary business card. Now, that is an old illustration. Who carries business cards anymore? More. Uh, we should all have something that we can uh, uh, immediately transfer to someone else's electronic device that identifies us. <laughs> And on that card, we ought to have printed Dave, a servant of the Lord. Steve, a servant of the Lord. Fred, a servant of the Lord. This is a comprehensive calling. As Paul calls, tells the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. Spurgeon said the Christian man can make every meal a sacrament and his ordinary avocations, the exercise of his spiritual priesthood. We must have a sense of dependence in this calling. So the psalmist in 123.2, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hands of the master, so our eyes look to you, our God. We need his help in this. And it must be heartfelt service to Jesus. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not as for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul in Romans 12.11, don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. And in this freely serving one another as stewards of the grace of God. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, but not as an opportunity for the flesh, but free through love to serve one another. Peter teaches us in 1 Peter 4.10 As each of you has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. By God's grace, may we all, in every circumstance, declare with Paul, I belong to God. My life is devoted to his service. Let us pray together.
Our Father, how wonderful is your word. How grand to see it exemplified so powerfully in the person of the Apostle Paul in such terrible circumstances, thereby giving us a wonderful example to emulate, not to try to be something that we're not, but to live out and into what we are in Christ. Grant us grace to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.